Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, podcast? It's Corey from Best Served. This podcast is a clubhouse recording called Friday Food News Roundup from November 5th, 2021. Tune in every Friday for a news roundup hour as our diverse crew of industry leaders breaks down the current affairs of all things food, beverage, and hospitality. Hope you enjoy. All right, everybody. Welcome to Friday Food News Roundup. Uh, it's a one-hour room. It is recorded. The recordings go up onto uh, Best Served Podcast uh, today within two hours so you can catch the full recording. And supposedly there's some way, Sean, you're going to have to help me here. Pin a link? Yes, here we go. Let me see if I got this. Oh, it's amazing. That's a great feature by Clubhouse. Add a link. There we go. There's last week's Clubhouse number 25 recording Friday Food News Roundup from last week. You can actually click on that and check that out, which is a super cool new feature that they have with the outbound link there. Great conversation. We talked about what else? Labor shortage a little bit. We talked about menu prices. We talked about uh, food trends last week. This week, we got two articles uh, we're going to focus on today from the New York Times. Accessibility is a right. This restaurant treats it that way by Pete Wells talking about um, Contento in East Harlem. We'll get into that a little bit. And then from Food Dive, Tetra Pak launches accelerated program to speed product development by Chris Casey. We'll get into that as well. We'll kind of look at it from a multitude of angles and uh, trying to unpack and understand kind of what's happening here. And then uh, I'm going to try and uh, get uh, interactive with the audience a little bit, see if we can't get somebody to, uh, to maybe even copy and paste, back-channel me a, uh, an article that was uh, top of mind for them to see if we can't uh, get another topic in the mix. But uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. want to introduce Quincy Pham, and uh, thanks for joining us this week. I know you weren't able to last week, so I'm excited to get your perspective into the mix. Uh, Quincy is, I love this, multicultural marketing assassinista and founder of QR8 Group, the IDH strategies for Fortune 500 companies to reach diverse audiences with authenticity. Born in Vietnam, raised in Iowa, evolving in Los Angeles. Good stuff, Quincy. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes. And then Sean P. Walshef is uh, the owner, founder of Cali Barbecue Media, the digital hospitality podcast based in San Diego, really focusing on uh, teaching brands and entrepreneurs how to become their own media company using smartphone storytelling and strategy. We are absolutely simpatico on that. Sean, <laughs> always a pleasure. Good to see you. Jensen, what up? Thanks for having me. So first article, New York Times again, accessibility is a right. This restaurant treats it that way by Pete Wells. Uh, Contento in East Harlem sets an example for an industry that is rarely welcoming to diners with disabilities. Restaurants and buildings constructed in the last 30 years tend to have entrances in restrooms that comply with the Americans with Disability Act of 1990. Even so, they may jam the seats in too tightly, 
fail to leave a clear path to the restroom, or provide no dining services at wheelchair height, a common mistake at more expensive sushi bars and tasting counters. And uh, Pete actually did interesting. This is actually a restaurant review. Did something interesting and brought uh, a friend, a compatriot of his, who uh, is living with disabilities, and kind of got some of her takeaways, talking about the accessibility in the restroom, especially talking about the accessibility of uh, counter and bar space. So that was an interesting take there, uh, Pete understanding that uh, he could only see through the lens of the outside and not actually living that. So, uh, Lindsay, want to go ahead and come over to you first. When you're thinking about this, accessibility in restaurants, put the strategy cap on. What, uh, what are you thinking about? What do we need to be paying attention to? Are there audiences that are underserved that we're missing the mark if we're not able to understand their needs, their challenges? What do you think? I love this article and I, I do encourage everyone to read it just from a diversity and inclusion perspective because uh, it, it's a beautiful article. Um, and I got my takeaway was less about like, oh, is this needed? Of course, it's absolutely needed. And it it is a right. Um, but I think it's about educating uh, business owners and restaurant owners about, you know, the actual facilitation uh, and the building. So for me, one, love the article. think it's absolutely necessary, um, especially if you're going to be a restaurant because, you know, food and being brick and mortar, it's important that your neighborhood understands that you care about them um, and you care about uh, making it accessible to everyone. So I'm a big advocate of that. And on the other hand, I feel like the city itself should really, really educate new restaurant owners or current restaurant owners, um, you know, annually about this kind of thing. Um, They should make it easier for restaurant owners to, uh, you know, build space or create accessibility for um, their guests. So I think that there is... um, an education level that needs to take place through the city um, and the city planner and coding so that it makes it easier for restaurant owners to do it because it's also very costly in terms of, you know, architecture and getting things um, approved by the city for code. So those are my two takeaways. Yeah, appreciate that. Have you seen uh, any of that happening uh, with any of your clients where, where they're, working with the municipalities to be able to kind of bring some of these challenges that they may be facing on building codes or with construction or uh, with uh, any ADA compliance? Yes, absolutely. And I work with a lot of casinos and resorts, so they have the time and the money and the energy and the um, correspondence with the city because the cities will always look at it as this is income for our city. So they're going to work a lot harder uh, to be in compliance or to educate you know, the builders and the architects. Um, for this kind of code. But if you think about the smaller restaurants and the smaller business owners, you know, they probably are in line, you know, who knows how long the wait is to even get a city inspector or somebody to come and work with them. And so they rely on either their, you know, their management or the architect they're working with. And that could be really, really frustrating and hard sometimes. So I do believe that the city's got to either hire more people or provide more education to the smaller business owners. Because when you're working with, for is my clients who are Fortune 500 companies and they have the, you know, the team um, put in place for coding. Um, they do it very well, not only in their hotel rooms, but their restaurants, um, in their lobbies. Everything is really uh, put 
down on paper and approved uh, by the city for code before it even is built. But again, like some restaurants who have, have been in business for a while and are smaller may not have the, the time, energy, and resources for that. So again, I think it's really up to the city to really help the smaller businesses out. Makes sense. Sean, you're not Fortune 500 yet, soon. But as that small uh, business owner, uh, give us some of your thoughts, some of your insights. I'm, I know that I'm sure you've struggled with, uh, with zoning and coding and with uh, construction and, and these elements. What, uh, what thoughts do you have from, from that perspective? Maybe let's start there and then we can talk about the actual guest interaction side of that equation. But maybe start, start there with uh, a little bit of the challenges on the zoning side and construction, things like that. Sure. I, I love um, what's been shared already because it, it, it is a challenge for the independent operator. And um, depending on the municipality, depending on the city, the county, the building department, and depending on the building. You know, we took over in a two-bedroom house that was turned into a restaurant um, that had multiple challenges of where the front entrance was and to be sensitive to ADA requirements. But, you know, it's an interesting article, and I'll, I'll confess to my teacher, which I think just, uh, that puts Chef Jensen Cummings as the, the teacher in class. I didn't do my homework, and I didn't read the article, so I will, after this, actually read the article because I don't like commenting on things that I, I haven't read. So full disclosure, I didn't read the article. I'm sorry, teacher. But um, nonetheless, we're in the hospitality business, and I don't think that an ADA requirement should be the standard. I mean, that's the bare minimum for accessibility. And I think if we're truly taking care of guests, and that's guests of all walks of life, uh, we need to go above and beyond. And it is very challenging. Uh, it's challenging for us. It's been challenging for 13 years building you know, a single unit sports bar and barbecue restaurant in a very difficult location in San Diego with a lots of different physical challenges. Um, but now looking at what we're trying to build out, we're trying to become more accessible through digital channels. So we're trying to figure out ways. We're not necessarily designing spaces for people to come and dine in. That's not our focus right now. Um, but if we were building places that we wanted to actually have customers dine in, I think this is a very interesting topic. I mean, uh, one of our close friends, Troy Hooper, who joins Clubhouse very frequently, incredible thought leader, Nourish Brands, um, he shared a TikTok video of a woman, um, basically a gratitude TikTok video sharing that she went out to eat um, on a busy day at Outback and her child has autism and they couldn't find a place to eat. But they went up to the hostess and they asked the hostess, you know, how long it would be for a table. And they said, you know, they have a, a child with special needs. The Outback actually had a special section designed for accessibility and for people with special needs. So that is one corporation that you would have no idea has already gone out of their way to think outside of the box to really address true hospitality. That's winning. That's where we need to go as an industry. And that's just a beautiful example of people doing, doing the right things. And I don't know if that was in their build out. I don't know if they re retrofitted their restaurant to address for that. But that's the power of storytelling on the internet. Now, I think differently of Outback just because of one TikTok video. Uh, my name is Sean, and I'll, I'll yield the mic. I saw something similar, uh, I think, on TikTok. Maybe it was Corey, actually, who shared it, where uh, a table brought out kind of, you know, the usual, like, uh, candle for somebody's birthday with a chocolate cake. Uh, couldn't really tell what was happening at first. And finally, I realized that they had written happy birthday in Braille. And, and the woman was, was reading the plate of, of chocolate 
right? And uh, in Braille, which was, I mean, that's just huge. When we can make people feel included in the story uh, is, is so meaningful. That's, that's the true sense of hospitality, which I really appreciate. Uh, I want to then, Sean, for you and just for anybody, I, I think there was a little section that I maybe wanted to read as well. Because uh, as I mentioned, Pete Wells, obviously prolific uh, food and industry writer, uh, brought a, a guest of his. And, uh, you know, there's a couple sections where, where she talks about her experience. And, you know, she needed no help to take her place at one of the tables that are designed to allow a wheelchair to fit underneath the surface or to get into and out of the restroom at the end of the wide runway between the bar and a row of tables. The restroom itself, she declared a dream with several grab bars and a touchless sink, soap and towel dispenser. Right. Miss Miss Wisner can't take any of this for granted. Ninety nine percent of restaurants may call themselves accessible, but they're not, she said. So this, like, this was really, really, I think, a, a powerful statement because it was directly from her experience things that I think we take for granted. So I wanted to, to highlight that because I think it was a, a great approach from Pete of the way that this story was, was told as well. Uh, Sophie, you want to uh, jump in here? Tell us what you thought about this article. Yeah. Um, I have to say, like Sean, I am um, currently scanning it furiously, trying to make sure that I um, understand what it's about. Um, I come at this from a little bit of a different perspective as someone who has chronic illness, um, and who considers himself disabled. Um, I am not someone who needs a wheelchair, um, or uses a wheelchair for any mobility purposes, but, um, I do follow a lot of disability advocates on, uh, social media, especially Twitter. Um, and I have seen, I mean, the ADA is probably one of the most overlooked um, laws. It's just, it's so hard um, to find places that are actually accessible or events that are accessible. I mean, people don't think about how, like, even cafes that have, like, one step up, you can't get a wheelchair over that step. Um, So there are so many ways that places become inaccessible just through very small things that people who are able-bodied don't see or haven't noticed. I myself, when you were reading that little clip, was thinking, oh, I forgot about the bathroom. I totally forgot about how the bathrooms need to be wheelchair accessible and also need to be functional when you're in there with a wheelchair. I was thinking about, um, there was this video that was on, I think it was on TikTok first and then on Twitter a couple of months ago about how the way that we were starting to put um, chairs and tables outside during uh, the summer months for COVID was actually becoming really wheelchair inaccessible for people because they couldn't get through the sidewalks with all of the different um, obstructions, wires and such. I'm going to try to find that video, but it was just very surprising because you don't think about that as someone who doesn't use a wheelchair. But what becomes accessible for other people can sometimes lead to inaccessibility for disabled people. And I yield the mic. Yeah, thanks for that, Sophie. Yeah, it's just, you just don't pay attention to the world that isn't right in front of you because it's not your reality. And so I think, again, if, if hospitality is about anticipating and fulfilling people's needs before they even become 
a need, I think, is an important aspect of this. So what I liked about this, Jeannie Chun, who's, uh, who's uh, typically with us, uh, shared this out because I think it sets, it sets a roadmap, right, uh, for us to be able to follow, to think about how we can create spaces, one, that are more inclusive, but a mindset shift towards the level of inclusivity that I think it takes. I think about this across a lot of different spectrums. I think about people with dietary restrictions, right, that have certain dietary needs and how they've been, you know, for so many of us chefs, it's like, oh, great, another person who has fake allergies who's going to have me change my entire menu to be able to accommodate them. And we were guilty of that, myself included. And uh, it wasn't until people came into my orbit, I was like, oh, you're a celiac. Tell me about what that is. And now I put in the effort. We usually don't put in effort until it affects us, which two of the owners of this location uh, live with disabilities, or if somebody in our immediate circles is affected by something that we then say, wait, let me, let me look at this and try to understand it better. And I think to, let's, to make a business uh, decision around this. I think there there's tons of opportunity in this. If you do this authentically, you can attract audiences that have been forgotten, left behind, dismissed outright by the hospitality industry, by the food industry. And if it's from physical disabilities, mental disabilities, the needs that your body has for be it dietary needs, anything like that, I think there's, there's a lot of actual money to be made there. Again, if you're doing this authentically, uh, there's, there's absolutely a case for the business decision. So wanted to, uh, to highlight that as well. Uh, Sean Quincy, any last thoughts on this before we move on to our next, uh, our next topic? I just want to agree with you, um, Chef Jensen, that, hey, yeah, if you are able to target um, a specific audience, and this is actually works better for niche or smaller businesses, um, where the big ones will, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's the red line or black line and bottom dollar. Um, they are going to do what's best for their profit. However, a smaller business, if you are able to, this is what I preach to all of my clients, of specific audience and cater to them in an authentic way, you have a customer for life and price will not matter to them. It's the fact that they're paying for the experience that you provided to them. So hundred percent, if you can hone in on, you know, being diverse and inclusive and just making your guests welcomed, um, I think that you have a customer for life and word of mouth. So not only are they going to support, but they will make sure that, you know, their network um, supports you as well. So I think that's very crucial to think about. Um, So do it because it's the right thing to do, but also do it because you're going to have a audience for life. Yeah, I think about another audience, actually, Kai Walsh, uh, a friend who uh, is the founder of the Queer Umbrella, really is putting together some really compelling business cases and pointed out some numbers to me, 800 million, I may be misquoting that, but the number was jarring, and I'm pretty sure around 800 million in basically um, leisure spending, income from the uh, LGBTQIA plus community in Colorado alone annualized was just shocking to me. And it was little things that become big things, but little things in just accessibility to restrooms and creating gender neutral restrooms as, as a matter of policy and a, a matter of process for restaurants could unlock Kai's argument is 
the potential for 800 million in uh, in potential revenues that uh, that the queer community in Colorado alone was spending on food, beverage, entertainment. So I think there's a big uh, a big argument to be made for the business decision. Again, got to be authentic to your brand. It's not uh, opportunistic. That's uh, that's it. All right, let's get on to this next article. Um, Zoe and Jonia from our, from our usual panel of pundits brought this one up from Food Dive. Tetra Pak launches accelerator program to speed product development by Chris Casey. Tetra Pak has launched its Leap Accelerator program. The company will offer brands the help of its experts and contract manufacturers to formulate products and target new consumption occasions, develop packaging and promotions, as well as help with consistency and scalability. A couple other notes. Some of the products the Accelerator program could support include dairy and plant-based foods, as well as beverages with high acidity. The Accelerator comes as a growing member of CPG companies, consumer packaged goods companies, including Kraft Heinz and General Mills, try to create more sustainable products from the ingredients to packaging, which feeds right into what we just talked about earlier this week with the James Beard Foundation and talking about uh, sustainability and food packaging. So I think this is top of mind clearly for brands all across uh, the industry at every single level. So uh, I want to come over to you, Sean. You're, uh, I mean, you're already looking at barbecue sauce. I know CPG is high, high, high in your growth trajectory for what you're doing, thinking about the potential for food incubator spaces to develop products. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, we're super excited about the ability for a restaurant owner or someone that's a food entrepreneur, beverage entrepreneur, to sell things globally. I mean, that's why we care about the internet and leaning into storytelling on all these different platforms because it's so important to understand if you have an incredible recipe, you don't need to just sell it to your village. Um, there are companies that can help you scale uh, in ways that you've never thought possible. So yes, we are looking into gold belly. We are looking into e-commerce, really building out our e-commerce, the, not just the retail side, but any, any different type of opportunity that we haven't thought about is now open to us because we're building on the backs of giants. You know, we don't need to create Amazon. Amazon's been created. Um, we don't need to create Shopify. Shopify's there. We just need to figure out how do we package what we have into something that the quality travels incredibly that the experience when someone opens it, it's like they're opening an iPhone. And number two, is it memorable? If it's memorable, then they're going to post about it, talk about it, share about it, and it'll be a big source of revenue for us. Yeah, for you on that, uh, I'm, I'm super interested. You mentioned like opening it like an iPhone. <laughs> Uh, for you, what is that? How do you, how are you thinking about that user guest experience? And, and the reason I'm asking this from, from your perspective is because we're so used to butts and seats. And you mentioned that is not the major focus that you have right now. So we forget about the experience of that wow moment when the plate arrives, when somebody's unpackaging that, unboxing that at home. Dig into that a little bit because there's there's a mindset shift, a little bit of an unlock that we need as as food and restaurant people to think about the experience on that that aha that wow moment at the end. What what, what are some of your thoughts or uh, strategies there? Yeah, well, one thing I, I'll put a plug for delivering the digital restaurant, the book that Carl 
Orsborne and Meredith Sonderland uh, published uh, just recently. I know I connected you guys. Hopefully you have them on Best Serve podcast very soon. But there is a quote in that book where they talk about the second hardest thing to deliver is food. The number one hardest thing to deliver is organs. And when you start to think about how sensitive food is to deliver, you start to realize how important the packaging is. So number one, the packaging has got to maintain the quality. If you get terrible barbecue, um, that's no good for us. But back to the storytelling side, we care about that iPhone unboxing experience because we understand the internet. We understand that TikTok videos are important. YouTube videos are important. I mean, we unbox our toast equipment and make content for toast, our primary technology partner. But if we can figure out a way to make that barbecue experience, getting that rack of ribs, getting those pounds of brisket, something that's pleasurable, exciting, something that, you know, there's swag in it, there's personalization where somebody actually can feel the hospitality of our restaurant comes into the hospitality of our home, then we've hit a home run. Ooh, I like everything that you're saying. That's a, it's a big shift. That's a big shift. And that's why you and I are so active on all these platforms is to try and continue to just break through one more person to understand that this is this is truly an opportunity for that guest experience, that hospitality. It just may not be in the medium, in the forum that we came up expecting it to be in, yet it still deserves that same level of creativity, of attention. So appreciate that. Quincy, for you, uh, this is this is an incubator space that goes right into into your world. These are obviously a couple of the companies mentioned are in that Fortune 500 level. Uh, it feels like they're definitely trying to future build here a little bit. Find those, the basically you can build your own business, but it also feels like they want access to these uh, these forward thinking individuals and companies. What uh, what are you thinking here? I love this. Obviously, from a creative perspective and a marketing and advertising, I love it because I can't even, you know, I can't even wait for all the beautiful designs that come from this. And it's sustainable as well. So that's a huge, huge factor. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the, at, from a from a consumer point of view and, um, you know, I, I, this was just spoken about. I just hope the quality of the product inside is still good. And I'll use an example, for instance, coconut water. I love coconut water. I like, I will go to any restaurant and I'll actually order the coconut, <laughs> the, the live young coconut and drink from the, and it's the best coconut. But when you go to the stores, right, there's so many options in terms of packaging and sustainability, but I can tell you, I've like, there's one brand that I like, um, and the rest are terrible. <laughs> so at the end of the day, I hope the product inside is just as good um, as, you know, the packaging. Love the experience of, you know, being able to get like really amazing brands and um, quality ingredients that are put out there. But I also hope that this doesn't just apply to the big companies because, I, you know, in the article, it was like, General Mills, and it was like all the big guys that have been around forever um, are focusing on this, which is incredible because they're the ones that are usually, you know, not sustainable or polluting this earth and not providing good quality products. Um, so I hope that this will be affordable and accessible for um, the really amazing food brands out there that are startups or um, just starting out. Yeah, that's one of those places where there is this polarization. 
So the fact that these companies are now realizing that there's a major demand and need for this kind of forward thinking, but also the kind of sustainable actions that it's going to take for us to shift the bad practices that have been so the norm for generations now through these specific companies and just practices at large. And so that, again, I'm happy about that. It also sometimes just feels so opportunistic. It's like, where the hell have you been all of this time? And then all of a sudden there's a groundswell from these, these very grassroots individuals, organizations, companies, entrepreneurs. And then all of a sudden the big machine comes and siphons all the attention away. So there's, there's that side of it. On the other side, I always am paying attention to what the big guys are doing because in that creates the white space to have the true authentic voices within that work be able to have the platform to shine. So, so I'm definitely a, a big steal from that authority uh, because they're always going to be fighting against their own past indiscretions, their past practices. And if that's truly what you're trying to develop and put into the world, I think it does create that white space. Uh, Andrew, super interested. We talk a lot about CPG. What were your what were your thoughts on uh, on this article? Oh, you got to unmute, Andrew. Yeah, I I know. I keep trying to hit the the little microphone on my picture instead of the bottom right hand corner. <laughs> um, you know, to to me, this is really interesting from the point of view of. Um, I think that it's as obvious a right thing to do as uh, putting a Ziploc on the back, on the top of a bag of cereal. Um, you know, many of the broadliners for a long time have had test kitchens. And if you sign up with them and you're developing a concept or developing new menu items, you can go into their test kitchen and, you know, work with their product and figure out what you want to do. Um, and so to have the same capabilities for packaging and CPG products, which, you know, you and Sean and I have had this conversation before, everybody needs to be in the CPG business. It doesn't matter what you do. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's a sauce, whether it's your ranch, whether it's your soup, whatever it is, you, you know, your salt. You need, you need to get that into other people's homes, where your customers' homes with their logo on it. And, you know, like Quincy was saying, you know, hopefully beautiful, beautiful design that goes along with it that supports the brand. Um, but, yeah, this is one of those things to me that is like, why is this just now happening? This should have happened a long, long time ago. So I'm Andrew, and I'm yielding the floor. Thank you for that. Uh, Sophie, anything to, to add put a, before we put a pin in this one? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I people might not know me. I am the um, background person for all of Jensen's podcasts. And so I have been on maybe 300 to 350 podcasts and let's get it uh, straight you run the show and you just let me babble on for half an hour every day well you know some of those things that he says really do get stuck in your brain and cpg is one of those things that i have um really i think he might have mentioned it on at least like 
50 to 75 podcasts of those 300 to 350. Um, CBG is just like, I was, I have a friend who I'm helping who's starting her own bakery and she was trying to figure out what she was going to do about um, the holidays. And I was talking to her about just like making the crumble that goes on the top of the apple pies for people. And she was, so she, now she's selling that. And it's just, if you, you don't think about how people don't have the time to make everything or they don't want to make their own ranch or they don't want to make their own mayonnaise. And so going along and making the CPG and then selling it is really another revenue stream that is really helpful. And then we did have this James Beard talk uh, this Tuesday and we were talking about all the different ways you can have sustainable packaging. And I mean, it's so ridiculous how many people still use styrofoam. Styrofoam is still used so much. And it's like all of my favorite brands still use styrofoam. And so if you have one of those brands or if you are in the position to change something, stop using styrofoam. It's killing the earth. I've been going around emailing people who are my favorite brands and being like, please, I am one of your customers. I love your food. Please stop using styrofoam. This is Sophie and I yield the floor. That's so great. That's some grassroots activism there. Love hearing that, Sophie. Hadn't heard that before. I'm happy that you shared that. And the crumble. Brilliance. Sell the crumble. I absolutely love it. The two reasons that I think every single brand needs to be in CPG is number one, you're already producing that product. If your fucking pickles are fire, don't let it only be for the people who happen to be able to once a month come to your location. Uh, you have to be able to bring that product to market. Whatever your market is, whatever scope, whatever scale it is. Number two is because you need to diversify revenue streams. You need to be able to get check averages up. You need to be able to have frequency of ordering increase, mission critical. And so those two reasons are key. The third, which I love the most, is you need to keep your brand top of mind. Every time I open my fridge, my freezer, my pantry, I'm reminded of your brand and how much it means to me, not just when I can get together with friends for lunch and stop by your, your spot, Every day, I interact with your brand in some way. And moreover, the people that are going to be the vanguard, that are going to be the, the ambassadors of your brand, are the type that like to invite friends to adventure through food. Because we, we see the world through our own personal journeys and adventures of food. And anytime we discover something new, I want to share it with everybody I know. So when I try Cali barbecue's hot sauce, or barbecue sauce, excuse me, I want other people to have that aha moment as well. And so when you invite friends over, you're going to bust out those pickles, those, that barbecue sauce, those seasoned chips, whatever it is that you are bringing to market, you're going to share that with people. And people go, yeah, I drive by that place all the time. I've never stopped by. This is amazing. I'm going to go there next, right? That's how you create a, a groundswell movement. So CPG, big Big believer in it. Uh, okay, uh, Sean, Quincy, anything before we wrap this one? And then we'll get one more uh, one more topic into the mix. 
Nope, I'm good. I'm excited about it and uh, subscriptions. So from a marketing perspective, once this kicks in, make sure you put uh, some money into marketing for subscriptions because that will help, you know, this trend um, be more profitable if you are a business looking into, you know, this new type of packaging um, and products. Yes, can't just be the transaction when somebody shows up to your location. I think subscriptions, even pre-sales, on tickets, things like that for uh, food experiences is absolutely going to be key. So, all right, I want to bring uh, another conversation into the mix. And like I said, I think I've said this before, I think it's going to come up almost every single, uh, every single week because it is just so pervasive, so top of mind right now for everybody. From the New York Post, Salt Bay's London restaurant with a $1,975 steak hiring chef for $16 an hour. Labor shortage, it's, 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 a, it's a culture issue at mass scale, not a labor issue playing out. So many places are seeing uh, more and more engaged employees and teams because of the fact that they're doing something different, that it's not the status quo. So this is one, and I'm going to throw it in the mix. So I'm going to read some of this since, the, don't worry, Sean, nobody did their homework on this one. Um, yes, Salt Bay, Nusret Gotsi, I totally butchered that name, also known as Salt Bay, is hiring a chef to whip up a pricey menu like Golden Giant Tomahawk Steaks. The cost, wow, $1,975. I wonder if that's the one like covered in gold flake, completely covered in gold flake that I've seen. Uh, the celeb chef is looking at a chef to partee for his famous London steakhouse and offering a station chef role $16 an hour plus tips for their service. That wage is equivalent to a side of mashed potatoes or sweet corn at the trendy eatery. Jeez. Uh, the job was posted on cater.com and notes restaurant offers a highly competitive salary. I might read a little bit more, but I'm going to stop right there because that shit drives me insane. We talk about empty words a lot. We talk about some of those words. You see flexible schedule. It means you're never going to have your schedule on time and uh, it's going to be changing on you all the time. If you see high volume, fast pace, it means they're completely understaffed, always overwhelmed, and you're going to be running around with hair on fire. You see competitive salary, it means they're not. It means they looked around and said, how little can we pay alongside other people paying as little as possible? So this is another, another huge issue that is, uh, that's plaguing this industry. And we see you know, millions of people have left this industry altogether. I always cite uh, Black Box Intelligence's stuff that uh, talked to people who left the industry, 77% of whom said they would come back if conditions were correct for them. So I want to uh, open this up for discussion a little bit. Quincy, for you, what's, uh, what's happening here? I'm sure you're dealing with clients and, and seeing the, that they're having issues as well. What, uh, what are you proposing? What are you strategizing there? Um, so we do a lot of marketing for HR and we, I will tell you, we had, we, why we can't tell our clients how to manage their P&L. We do tell them if they want results, they need to, and, and better employees, they need to pay better. Um, and so we're big advocates for that. So this is kind of disgusting to me that even myself as a small boutique agency, I, I can't even imagine even paying an intern $16 an hour. So I think that is ridiculous, but it is the truth of the matter in the food industry. And 
again, I'm not a restaurant owner um, and I don't work specifically or employ people from the food industry. But from a marketing perspective, that's that's just really disgusting and sad. And um, no, it angers me. So I just I can understand if it's a small, you know, struggling restaurant, but a restaurant that's serving, you know, seventeen hundred dollar plates um, and can't afford to pay their staff that no wonder they can't, you know, keep employees. Um, so at the end of the day, I, I don't have any recommendations for any solutions. But again, we tell our clients all the time, you have to pay um, your your staff what they deserve. Um, and that just, I, I guess I'm really wanting to hear from the rest of the moderators, like their perspective when they hire, um, because I think that will be helpful to us when we also do strategy for recruitment um, for our clients. So yeah, I'm disgusted by it. I'm shocked, but it seems like that's how it last year almost, um, and even before that. So looking for any, you know, opinion. Yeah, Kenzie, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more offline too, but uh, we're definitely always working on what we call employee investment models of wages, benefits, culture, and education, having a balanced approach to being able to invest in those buckets to be able to create the whole health needed, the physical, financial, mental health of those that work within the industry, I think is is absolutely key. One of the first places that we talk about going, and uh, I don't want to find out where they have this in the EU, we look at MIT's wage calculator just to see across the country, like not theoretically, not 20 years ago when I was coming up in the industry, like today, today, what does it take to be able to at least survive within any given community? And I'm sure London I can only imagine that that is maybe half of what it would take for a one-bedroom walk-up apartment with a window that leads to a brick wall. Like that's that's the kind of reality that I'm sure is is the case there. So, I want to just read just a little a little bit more of this section and then come over to Sean. Um, quoted in this is an amazing opportunity for an experienced chef to party to join Newsret team in the new restaurant in London. As a chef de party, you will be working with some of the finest ingredients from the UK and abroad and one of the most famous steakhouses in the world. The site continued, you will play a vital role in a large team and will support the head chef during service. To be the successful candidate, Nezret London offers a highly competitive salary and excellent opportunities to develop a global career. They're, they're, doing, they're doing you all kinds of favors there. Uh, Sean, uh, thoughts on... Thoughts on this at large? What are you thinking? Well, I, the the issue that I have is the word pundit, <laughs> which I made a joke about when you posted on Facebook that uh, you're getting a panel of pundits, uh, you know, in the media to talk about what's happening in the media. It's it's always easy to have a judgment whether some you like something or you don't like something, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. The toughest part is context and the toughest part in every village, in every municipality, in every country, in every state. Um, the laws are different um, as far as labor goes. The living wage is different. Uh, the question really comes down to the fact that the state costs that much money and that's how much money that they're paying for minimum wage. I, I don't know what it's like to run a restaurant in London and I would be lying to you if I told you I did. I know what it's like to run a restaurant in Spring Valley and I know that for 13 years we've tried our absolute best to pay as much as possible. 
But number one, the biggest thing for us was if we weren't in business, we could pay nobody. So as we've evolved as a brand and as we've started to use technology to offer more benefits to reduce labor costs mm -hmm. so that we can actually provide better tools. I mean, we're onboarding with seven shifts because I believe in what Jordan Bosch and his team at seven shifts are building. I believe that they're going to give us tools that are going to allow us to do what we talk about every week on our digital hospitality podcast. We talk about taking care of our customers digitally the same way we do in house. But what have we been doing with our staff? You know, what have we been doing with our team? I need to do a better job as the leader of our business to check in with my team. And I need the technology that's going to help me do that. That technology is going to help me check in on a daily basis. They have an empathy model where Danny Meyer is investing in seven shifts because he believes in what they're building. So that's going to help us build a better restaurant, hopefully look at wage models that will allow us to create careers for people that they don't feel burnt out because I mean, Chef Jensen and I, we, we talk about this all the time. You know, you can't as a business owner complaining and bitching about why there's no one to work. The problem is you like, that's the reason people don't want to work for you. And if you start to share your story and you start to have a compelling story of the things that you're going to do as a leader, do I have all the answers? Absolutely not. Will I have the answers tomorrow? No, probably not. But I can promise you every single day I'm going to work hard to learn what other people are doing, to surround myself with people like the best, the best serve team, because you guys are boots on the ground. And that doesn't mean that I can't learn from London, but you know, for me to judge what's happening in London and Salt Bay's restaurant, I you know, defer to knowing that you know, I, I really don't want to go down that path. I can speak from my own experience. So hopefully, hopefully that helps a little bit. I actually think you're, you're pretty pretty good at this this pundit thing that was a great answer and also it was like a senate answer where they say thank you for asking that question let me uh answer a completely different question but no you're absolutely 100 percent right i think the ability to create what i like about what you do with your team and i see uh it looks like steven's back here i see steven from your team and interacting with your team is is transparency and trajectory Right. The transparency to be able to say, this is where we are. This is what we're doing. This is who we are. This is what we believe in. This is why we do what we do. And here is the goal that we're setting forth for ourselves as individuals, as a team, as a business, as a community. And then being able to very clearly highlight that trajectory. That is fundamental and something that is missed almost all the time in restaurants. We are just like, get your ass in there, put your head down, shut up and do the work and allow yourself to get kicked in the head because you're only as good as the next plate, the next plate, and the next plate for 12 hours, and then get out of here because you are just a body in hands. And so I think the transparency, the trajectory, and the communication that comes along with that is fundamentally key. So it allows you to build and grow into what you're trying to be. But just to say I'm a, I'm a small business, so if somebody do, I'll say, well, you know, I can't pay that people that much. Well, why can't you pay people that much? What is it about your business that has positioned you to not be able to create transparency and trajectory? Are you sharing the numbers or access to information with your team so that they have a clear understanding of this is the reality that we're in? Or are you just saying, shut up and do the job? So I think that's a, a key element of this. Uh, Andrew, this is, this is your wheelhouse. Workplace is worth working. This is, this is your realm. What's, uh, what do we need to be thinking about in this context? Absolutely. You know, 
I just read another article in Restaurant Business uh, from uh, about a month ago that there was a, a survey of almost 14,000 wage earners done by JobList, and it revealed that 58% of restaurant and hotel employees intend to quit their job by the end of the year. I mean, that's staggering. We've already lost 16% of, of the workers in our industry. And, you know, the, the conversations of the leading sources of their dissatisfaction was low pay, lack of benefits, long hours, right? And, and so I think that when we talk about creating workplaces worth working, one of the conversations that we're having at the most foundational level is why are we, if not the only one of very few industries where a line level employee goes into a job interview and expects not to have a conversation about PTO, sick time, uh, health, vision, dental insurance, uh, 401k or some other type of uh, savings program for the future. And so in order to, to create that workplace worth working, in order to appeal back to those 77% of people Jensen was talking about cited in the black box intelligence survey who would come back to the industry if the conditions were right. Guess what the conditions are? Everything that I just mentioned. And I think that, as Jensen said, that balance between wages, benefits, culture, and education, and understanding what appeals to the people that are going to be working for you, and um, understanding that it also might be something where when you're putting up a job story or a job post, a wanted ad, um, talk about the people that are already working there. Help help someone who is considering you as an employer think really long and hard about why they want to come there. And, and maybe it's because you live in a community that has a restaurant that employs writers and podcasters and artists. And, and they also happen to be really passionate about the food and what they're doing in the place that they're working. And I think that, you know, understanding that a living wage and listen this is the other thing in, in colorado specifically the gap between minimum wage and living wage is about twenty dollars an hour and and so that's something else and it's a whole different conversation that i'm not going to go down that minimum wage wage rabbit hole but <clears throat> we have to take care of the people who are taking care of our customers. I'm Andrew and that's it. Thank you for that. Two things I like about uh, talking about the, the employees. One, I think you, you quoted a little bit of uh, uh, Rosenstein bagels out in Seattle, who was one of those, those operators who's like bitching and moaning, complaining about like people don't want to work and, and you know, the labor shortage and all of this. Andrew had a conversation uh, with them and said, look, here's the reality. Broke down basically everything we've said over the last 15 minutes. And then they went out and posted 
about their people, said, if you're a writer, if you're a podcaster, if you're trying to build towards your future, we want you to be a part of our team. And like was really, really open about the, about the opportunity, highlighted some of their people. And it shifted right away. They saw a difference, not only in, in applicants, but also in the engagement that they had with potential applicants who saw that, who, who applied because they saw that social media post. Uh, I also like it because it's very much an ethos I know of Sean and the, and the Cali Barbecue team, which is I wanted to get uh, Stephen up here. Uh, you know, Stephen, somebody who, uh, who worked completely outside the restaurant industry and what has been with Cali Barbecue for like eight years and is Johnny on the spot, any job that needs to be done. But then I see Stephen on content all the time too. So Sean's very much sharing that that stage to be able to highlight Steven in his role. And so somebody else says, I don't have to be the owner of Cali Barbecue to be able to be meaningful, to be able to have my own platform. So Steven wanted to maybe open it up to you for a moment, talk about uh, that experience or just anything at large, please. So I'm gonna piggyback on the whole conversation about, or subject about like staff shortage, labor, people not wanting to work. I have a lot of friends that don't want to work. Reason being is there's the thing that I always live by. Sean always throws out on me is I'm always comfortable with being uncomfortable. I'm always willing to step up. That's a prime example. Nobody is willing to step up, get out of their comfort zone and be cross trained, trained in other positions where they have no idea what to do. Well, isn't that the point of training? Isn't that the point of learning? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that the truth? Like, you you want to be trained and learn new aspects? I'm see that I'm done. Yeah, I think, uh, and I'll, I'll come to Sean with this. I think if you're in an environment that teaching is actually a part of the job, 90% of the restaurants I worked in, if I wasn't in leadership, it wasn't a part of the job. It, like, uh, here's a scenario that I want to lay out. And Stephen, you're 100% right. And I know Sean can talk about the education that you all lay out because I think it creates a very different environment, a very different culture. The scenario of you're hired. They say, you know what, you're going to start on Monday. Why don't you come an hour before and we'll fill out all your paperwork. You show up an hour before. I'm so busy. It's been a, it's been a crazy lunch. Why don't you just jump in and scribble down your hours. We'll get, you, we'll get you set up at the end of the shift. Well, the end of shift comes. That was just, it was too much today. Why don't you just uh, bring back your paperwork tomorrow and we'll finish up tomorrow. And that manager's off for the next two days. And then you're off for two days. And then a payroll cycle comes around and you're not even on payroll because you never got into the system because training is not a reality. We tell that story all the time and thousands and thousands and thousands of people are like, check, I've lived that experience. So education, when it's a part, training and onboarding, which is why you're using seven shifts as a part of it, Hell yes, I think it is. And Sean, I wanted to come to you because you have invested the time, the money, the effort. You are onboarding. You're using the engage tool and things like that that Seven Shifts has, right? And so I'm fascinated in that. You're creating a different environment, which is why Steven is cross-trained in absolutely everything. How can we make that the, the norm? Maybe lay down a little bit of your process there. Well, I think it gets to the heart of what we look for um, when we're hiring and what we talk about on social media, what we do in real life, and that's we hire for hospitality. So you have to have hospitality in your blood. We can teach you everything else. We can teach you how to be a host. We can teach you how to make a cocktail. We can teach you how to cook barbecue. We can teach you how to make a TikTok video. But if you don't have hospitality in your blood, if you don't know how to care for people, 
And if you don't know how to listen, you don't know how to show up, and you're not willing to be uncomfortable, then it's probably just not going to be a cultural fit for you at our restaurant. But because we look for that, and because we no longer prioritize experience, I mean, one of the biggest shifts we made was we used to only hire servers that had experience. We used to only hire bartenders that had experience, only hired managers that had experience. And we got rid of that entire requirement. And we said, we're going to look for personality. We're going to look for character. We're going to look for humanity in people. And we're going to show up and we're going to do the best job possible with an open interview process. Let in, invite people in. I'm going to be there. My hiring manager is going to be there. My general manager is going to be there. And we're going to work on making this onboarding, making this entire experience a memorable experience. There's a book um, by Chip Heath and Dan Heath called The Power of Moments. It's one of my favorite books, but it's, it talks about the hiring process and how many companies, not just in the restaurant space, but all across the board, really drop the ball with the, the day that people remember their, when their career began. It's the, the first day of work. You know, like, what have you done to separate yourself from so many other employers? And to be honest with you, we need to do a better job. You know, we've changed so much in 13 years and we're building a different business. And, you know, now I'm further away from the actual operations than I've ever been. But that doesn't mean that it's okay for me to ig ignore these memorable moments that we can make for these new people that are literally becoming part of our family. What a way to end. I, uh, I deeply deeply appreciate that it's about that trajectory and uh and you do a, an amazing job of that and andrew talks about this all the time hire for attributes train for skills it's absolutely the shift that we need just because somebody's worked in a restaurant doesn't mean they've worked in your restaurant and uh, the ability to be able to bring people into the fold in a meaningful and comprehensive and consistent manner is going to be key to that so Great conversations. We are at that hour. like to keep everybody uh, respectful of everybody's time. So that is it for this week. Once again, if you're listening on the recording of this, this is a recorded podcast. It goes up in about two hours. Corey is all over it, and it will be up. And uh, if you're listening on the recording, get over to Clubhouse. You can be part of these conversations. And anytime anybody wants to submit a, an article to potentially be on the show, uh, please do so. Info at bestservedpodcast.com and we can break down anything. A, a, a Twitter rant, a Facebook post, uh, headlines in a, a newspaper, uh, forum on Reddit, any of it. We want to kind of be top of mind with what's happening, what's real in your world. So I want to thank uh, Quincy, Sean, Sophie, Andrew, Stephen, everybody who contributed. Really appreciate all of you, the insights that you have. And uh, we got a lot of work to do, and I'm excited to do it and with, uh, with all of you because this is how we build a more equitable, profitable, sustainable model for the future of this, uh, this industry that we love and hate so much sometimes. So appreciate you all. With that, we're going to go ahead and end the room. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.